Progress versus Parasites by Douglas Carswell. Chapter 13. England and America. The English, like the Dutch, came to acquire each of the key ingredients needed to produce intensive economic growth. Independence from external predators, dispersed power to constrain internal parasites, and interconnectedness to allow specialization and exchange. Unlike the Dutch, England, however, had coal rather than just wind and peat to power it all, which is one of the reasons why the English achievement overshadowed the Dutch. Long independent, the English had a history of imposing constraints on their kings. The common law tradition meant that the law was determined by what had gone before, not by the whim of the current monarch. Most famously in 1215, King John had his wings clipped by the barons who forced him to sign the Magna Carta. Think of it a little bit like the contract that the Venetians once used to impose upon their doge. Yet it's important not to overstate the extent to which the power of English kings was limited. For all the charters and supposed constraints, the Tudor strongman Henry VIII had freely expropriated and extorted in the 1540s, debasing the currency, seizing what he wanted, just like any other parasite. England remained a relatively poor and backward island off the coast of Europe. It's not until the extraordinary upheavals of the 17th century that monarchical absolutism came into conflict with the insurgent power of Parliament. The victorious parliamentarians defeated Charles I in battle before beheading him in 1649, although they didn't complete the job of asking the Stuarts until 1688, when they deposed his son, James II. William of Orange, the new monarch, was bound by a Bill of Rights passed by Parliament in 1689. In 1701, the Act of Settlement then placed further constraints upon the Crown, preventing a monarch from waging non-defensive wars without Parliament's permission and limiting the King's ability to appoint whomever he wanted to public office. It's no coincidence that the Glorious Revolution was followed by the Industrial Revolution. The former was the essential precursor of the latter. England's new Whig elite might have been an oligarchy, but they were a far cry from the absolutist monarchy of the old order. Increasingly, producers were protected from the parasitism of the ruling class. By the start of the 17th century, there had been over 700 monopolies sold by the crown. Awarded by the king in return for money, they controlled the manufacture and sale of everything from soap and starch to bricks, buttons, coal and iron. In 1623, early on in its struggle against absolutism, Parliament had tried to abolish these restrictions with the Statute of Monopolies. By the end of the 17th century, almost all were gone. A series of 17th century court cases removed many of the medieval restrictions on labour and diminished the power of the guilds. Already from 1614, an apprentice in one trade was freed to work in another. Tax extortion became a thing of the past. At the beginning of the 17th century, a Stuart monarch had imposed ship money, theoretically a tax to fund the navy, on the merchant class. By the end of the 17th century, parliamentary approval was required before any taxes could be imposed. Taxes were also removed from production 
the half tax, which had been an impost on the productive in some of the nascent cottage textile industries, was abolished in 1689 with the arrival of the new pro-productive regime. In 1694, the Bank of England was established. This helped ensure that credit was not restricted to the king's cronies, as has happened before. Records from one London bank in the early decades of the 18th century show that capital was increasingly allocated to merchants and businessmen that needed it. needed it, not simply to lords and aristocrats with the political connections to demand it. The consequences of all this show up unmistakably in the data on per capita output. By the 17th century, despite the turmoil of war, output per person in England had begun to rise after centuries of stagnation. Per capita output has increased in almost every decade since. The acceleration became more marked from the 18th century onwards. As Adam Smith noted a century later, in Great Britain, industry is perfectly secure. And though it's far from being perfectly free, it's as free or freer than in any other part of Europe. Britain also had the third ingredient needed for intensive growth. She was interconnected both internally and externally. New turnpike roads and canals cut the cost of transport, not only making it easier for products, not only making it easier for producers to bring their goods to market, but also facilitating regional specialization. The ability to access a wide variety of goods through exchange enabled cities to specialize in one particular industry in which they were most competitive. Daniel Defoe could see the signs of specialization everywhere in his tour through the whole island of Great Britain. Metal goods in Sheffield, woolens in East Anglia, cotton in Manchester, potteries in Cheshire, glassmaking in the Midlands. It wasn't only England's internal trade network that improved either. England accessed a vast international network too, like the Dutch who traded with the Baltic and Scandinavia and with France and Spain. Her commerce with the world beyond Europe expanded too, especially with the West Indies, North America, India and the Far East. Wider international trade enabled even greater specialization at home. By the start of the 18th century, raw cotton was being imported and processed in Lancashire and the North. By the 1790s, there were hundreds of cotton mills with over 500 textile businesses in Manchester alone. The combination of few restrictions on the free exchange of goods, labor and capital, along with the growing web of trade links made the industrial revolution possible. Investment flowed into the productive new technology. Labor was divided efficiently based on market demand. The import of raw materials from around the world freed up resources for specialization in manufacture. By exploiting her comparative advantage in industry, England became the wealthiest society the world had ever known. If Holland had been the richest place on the planet at the end of the 17th century, by the end of the 18th it was England. By the late 19th century, she accounted for almost a quarter of the world's manufacturing output. Between 1760 and 1830, the UK was responsible for two-thirds of Europe's industrial output growth, and her share of manufacturing production shot up from under 2% to nearly 10%. By 1860, her output share was up to 20%. By 1880, nearly a quarter of global output.
The UK produced over half the world's iron by 1860, and half its coal. Her energy consumption by 1860 was five times that of the US or Germany, six times that of France, and 155 times that of Russia. The United Kingdom by 1860 was responsible for a fifth of the world's commerce and two-fifths of the world's trade in manufactured goods. But if the English had shot up the development ladder, overtaking the Dutch, there were soon to be a host of others scrambling up behind them, starting with the recently formed United States of America. England, Holland and Venice imposed various kinds of institutional constraints upon their rulers. A powerful parliament, states general or a great council, the Bill of Rights, or the various impositions placed upon the Venetian doge. But it was ideas that ultimately explain why those who inhibited productive growth were themselves restrained. Thomas Hobbes, the author of Leviathan, which was published in 1651 amid the turmoil of the English Civil War, is often introduced to history students as a defender of the idea of a strong sovereign. And he was. His book is a stout defence of the established Stuart order. Powerful kings, Hobbes argued, were an essential bullock needed to save society from the kind of chaos that had gone before. But the point about Hobbes is that in making the case that kings should get the credit for establishing an orderly society capable of advancing, he implies something that was, by the standards of the day, extraordinary revolutionary. Perhaps more so than anything Erasmus or Luther ever came up with. Hobbes's central claim is that progress is a question of our political economy, not by implication of providence. How we arrange our society mattered, and we had our own agency. So unnerving were the implications of this that Hobbes, like many who have made the case for self-order, was forced to deny that he was an atheist. Hobbes argued that life in the past had been sultry, poor, nasty, brutish and short. It was parasitism, he implied, that had held humankind back, since in that prehistoric past there had been, as he put it, no place for industry in a world where the fruits of those were uncertain. It's worth emphasising that Hobbes was no advocate for a self-ordering society. For him, rather, a strong sovereign was the answer to the problem of the parasitism that had plagued civilization in the past. But like Luther, Hobbes unleashed thoughts that had a momentum of their own. He paved the way for others, like John Locke, to go even further, holding unfettered kings to be part of the parasitic problem. Like Hobbes, John Locke believed in natural rights and equality. He specifically refuted those ideas, widespread at the time, that civil society should be founded by divinely sanctioned order. He rejected the divine right of kings and argued that government had to have the consent of the governed, the implication being that if it didn't do so, it could be legitimately ousted. Society, Locke suggested, was capable of self-direction rather than being reliant on the direction of a strong sovereign, as Hobbes had advocated. Society is produced by our wants and governed by our wickedness, he wrote. The former promotes our happiness positively by unifying our affections. Back from exile in the Netherlands, 
Locke and his ideas helped shape what came next. From 1689, the Bill of Rights acted as a kind of contract of constraint between the Crown and its subjects. The former agreed to abide by a set of rules that protected the interests of the latter. Monopolies, phased out during the 17th century, were not reintroduced. In fact, the courts began to rule against guilds and in favour of free labour. As Locke's ideas moulded England after the Glorious Revolution, they helped write the US Constitution after the American Revolution. In 1776, the American colonies did what the Dutch had done a century and a half before. They ejected the external parasites, not the Habsburgs, but the Hanoverian George III, and established a free republic. Then in 1787, they adopted a constitution that dispersed power. Those inclined to overlook the influence that ideas have in the affairs of humankind might still maintain that the institutional arrangements that dispersed power in the Netherlands and in England arose by accident. There was little that was accidental about the constitution that America's founding fathers spent the long hot summer of 1787 drafting in a courthouse in Philadelphia. It separated power between federal and state governments and between different branches of government with deliberate care. With the right conditions for takeoff, America flourished spectacularly. The fledgling republic did not just prosper. Within a century of her birth, she had become the greatest economy of Earth, with her citizens consistently enjoying some of the most elevated living standards anywhere. In 1800, the United States accounted for a mere 0.8% of the world's manufacturing output, the process of industrialization having barely begun in North America. By 1860, she still only accounted for about 7% of manufactured output, far less than China did at the time, albeit with a much higher level in per capita terms than China. Yet by 1900, America had experienced explosive growth, accounting for almost a quarter of global manufactured output. By the early 20th century, the United States had overtaken the United Kingdom economically. By mid-century, she accounted for approximately 40% of the world's economic output. By golden age Holland, the United States does not stand out only as an economic powerhouse. America's contribution to science and learning are without precedent. For most of the past century, the United States has been the preeminent world economic power. So much so, in fact, that in Every decade, millions, at times tens of millions, have moved from every corner of the planet to live there and enjoy the fruits of its remarkable intensive economic growth. America led the Industrial Revolution based on coal and railways in the 19th century, the automobile revolution in the early 20th century, the electronic revolution in the mid-20th century, and the digital revolution today. Europe's most successful colony, America flourished like no other because she had that combination of factors essential for takeoff, like no other. Independence, openness to trade ideas and migrants, and internal safeguards against extortive elites. But what about America's history of slavery, you might well wonder? The American Republic has been run by its own elites. Didn't they prove as prone to extortion as any other elites? It's true that parasitism in America didn't come to an abrupt end in 1776. 
and this held the freshly forged republic back. America only achieved exponential industrial growth after the abolition of slavery in 1861. At the time slavery was outlawed, the United States accounted for about 7% of global manufactured output. Within 20 years of abolishing slavery, that percentage had doubled to 14%. Within 40 years of abolition, the United States was the leading economy on the planet. The eradication of slavery, perhaps the ultimate extractive institution, seems to have coincided with this great leap in output. Thank you for listening to this episode of Progress versus Parasites. I'm Douglas Carswell, and I very much enjoyed talking to you about the subject of my book. If you're interested in hearing more from this series, please do listen to some of the other episodes available on my podcast.